Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. This morning we're going to continue our series in the parables. And uh, just looking at the relentless pursuit of God's love and relationship with us and and, uh, exploring His characteristics, His nature, and what do these things reveal to us. And so in Matthew chapter 13 is where we're going to head to our text. But as we do, I want to just set this up and I just want to tell you what our destination is. Okay, Uh, Our destination is going to be an encounter with Jesus Christ, and as we look at the text, we're going to discover that he clearly sort of lays out three aspects, uh, counterfeit, closure, and then a sense of confidence. It's a great story that that he he gives us, and, and so to sort of put you in a frame of mind, I want to just find out where you are. I'm going to ask a question. Um, and, and one of the things I love with tests is when there's no right answer, right? Because the answer that you give is the answer that is true for you. Uh, there is a thing of absolute truth, but the question that I'm going to ask, you have to evaluate, and you have to evaluate it alone. You can't evaluate your spouse, your friend. I can't do it for you. Only you can answer this question. And so I'm going to make a statement, and, and I want you to just picture yourself in one of three camps, because when I, when I make this statement, you're either going to say, I have no idea what he's talking about, or possibly I, I know, but I, I don't care, or you're going to be right in the middle and kind of go, yeah, I understand, and I, and I think I agree, and I think I believe, but, but I'm just not sure how confident I am, or you're going to be in the third camp over here that says, man, I, I wholeheartedly agree with full assurance. Are you with me? And I have to pick on the Cub fan down here in this incredible Cubs jersey. So I'm, I'm going to give you a practice question first, okay? I love the Chicago Cubs, okay? Now, amen, right? For, for the true followers. So you, now that's your practice question because you're either, eh, you know, no, I, I, I disagree with that. Or, eh, kind of, you know, they're, they're you know, lovable losers and all that. Or you're like me over here in Camp 3 that goes, man... I love Wrigley, love the Cubs. I'm a diehard fan, okay? So, one of three camps. Are you with me? Here's the statement, and I want you to personally evaluate where you stand with this statement. It is great to live in confidence each and every day, knowing the love, the hope, the joy, and assurance of a personal walk and relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, each one of us are going to fall into one of these camps, I'm not really sure, or yeah, I've heard all that, but, but I reject it, but I'm here because, well, it makes me feel good. Or somewhere kind of in the middle, yeah, I agree, but I'm not really sure how confident I live with that truth. Or you have this absolute incredible assurance, and you're fully on board with that statement. Honest truth is every single one of us are in one of those camps. And I want you to just be honest enough this morning with God And just ask the Holy Spirit who is coming alongside you this morning. He's going to teach you. He's going to instruct you and say, Father, help me understand where I stand in that relationship. Because as we unpack this story that Jesus tells, this is sort of the the idea that he gives us. Now, we live in a culture that, um, you know, I love impersonators. 
Uh, I love these guys who can sort of give great impersonations of other people, you know. Um, we, we have one guy around here that likes to try to do an impersonation of Pastor Scott Mason, but it's not really good, you know. But, you know, so, someone has once said that, you know, the idea of um, flattery uh, is given through imitation, sort of imitation, they have the greatest form of flattery. Well, that's not always really true, especially in a day and age of cybersecurity and, and identity theft and everything else. But what Jesus begins to unpack in this parable is identity theft. He, he begins to talk about what it is to be an impersonator or an imposter. In Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, Jesus tells a parable of the parable of the sower. And he talks about how this, this farmer went and he sowed his seed. And the seed in that parable is the word of God. It's the truth of God's word. And how Satan sort of snatches it away. He kind of uses the illustration of the birds or the rocky ground and things that God will do to distort that or that Satan will do to distort the truth of God's word. But here in our parable this morning, beginning in verse 13, he shifts that just a little bit because the, the seed is not simply the truth of God's word, Jesus is going to tell us that the seed that is sown is people. And so I want to look at this parable and, and understand going into it that Satan opposes the kingdom of God, and he will do everything he can to snatch God's truth from you and from me. And in the process of doing that, he will do everything he can to be an imitator or an imposter to the kingdom of God, that there is this battle that takes place. And so three very quick parables that Jesus gives, beginning in verse 13, he talks about false Christians in the parable of the tares. He goes on to talk about false growth of a believer in, in the parable of the mustard seed. And then in the parable of the leaven, one simple little verse, he talks about uh, the false doctrine. And so I want to look at this parable beginning in verse 13 of the wheat and the tare. The tare, English word, you can look it up, is, is darnell. And, and, and Jesus clearly understanding the people that he's talking to. And even as they are listening, they understand completely the word picture that Jesus gives to them. I've never been a wheat farmer, but I've hung around in haylofts. And so I, I kind of know what it is to you know, sort of chew on something. But, but these guys would have clearly understood as they were growing wheat that there was a weed that would come along that looked just like the wheat. And, and no one could really tell them apart until it was harvest time. Because at harvest time, the wheat would have a kernel that they could utilize. The weed or the darnel or the tear would not have that kernel. But they couldn't tell apart until they were fully grown. And so it's in that context, again, clearly understanding that Jesus gives us this parable. So I'm going to ask you to just follow along as we begin to look at this passage. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. Follow along with me. He, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and they went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. In verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the uh, weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat 
into my barn. Interesting picture that Jesus begins to paint for these listeners. Uh, this is a great parable in, in series of twos. It's, it's really kind of a neat little process. And we could simply stop there and say, well, gosh, what does that really mean? Well, the neat thing is that Jesus comes back and he clearly explains exactly what he's talking about. So we're going to continue in our text. If you would jump down to verse 36, look what he says. Then he, that's Jesus, left the crowds and he went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And so he answered, he says, the one who sows the seeds, the good seed, is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Are you seeing the twos laid out here? Everything's in twos. So verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and, and burned, um, with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Great phrase by Jesus. He used it earlier in the chapter. And he's simply saying, listen, if you have ears to hear, if you have a heart and a mind to discern, please pay attention to what I'm saying. Jesus is beckoning us to, to listen clearly and intently to exactly what he is saying. Well, when you look at this passage, I, I love it because it's, it's in twos. And Jesus gives us this picture that there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of righteousness, right? The kingdom of good, but there's also this kingdom of evil. Uh, you see it in every great old Western. There's a guy in a white hat and a guy in a black hat. Nowadays in Star Wars, you got the guys in white and you got the guys in black. It's, there's this constant battle of good and evil. And, and Jesus is saying, look, you live in a kingdom. You live in a world that is both good and evil. What are we supposed to do with that? But he also talks about two sowers. He says the Savior plants his children in the world. Then he goes and he says Satan plants his children in the world. Well, that's interesting. He says there's two seeds that are sown. They look the same. When you look at a seed, it's hard to tell what a seed is when it's planted, isn't it? It's just a seed. And you go, what, what is this? And then sometime later, something begins to sprout. No, you know, and you begin to understand what it is. But he says there's two seeds. They look the same. The wheat, the tare, or the darnel. And so what does he tell us about these two seeds? He says these two seeds are sown together. Where are they sown? They're sown in the world. Two seeds that are sown in the world. He says they're grown together because they're going to grow because you can't tell them apart until the harvest comes. So you have to let them grow. He says they're, they're sown together, grown together. They're, they're known together. Why? Because they, they look the same. You really can't tell them apart. They look identical. But he says, you know what, but they're known together, but they're not going home together. <laughs> he says, there will come a point at which the harvester will separate the weed from the wheat, the wheat from the tear or the darnel, the counterfeit from the authentic. They will be separated. And, and there's two solutions that Jesus shares with us in this parable. Did you see it? The, the servants had a solution. What was that? I, I see weeds coming up. Do, do you want me to go just rip those out and throw them away? And Jesus said, no, no, that's not your job. Dave, that, that's not your job. It's not your job to try to discern who's authentic, who's not authentic. 
It's not your job to discern who's counterfeit and who's real. That's my job. And so he simply says, nope, you you have to let them grow together. You have to let them be known together. You have to wait until the harvest comes. And he says, then at the harvest, what we're going to do is, is Jesus says, we will, we, God, will harvest. He will take people. And he said, I'm going to take the bad stuff and I'm going to bundle it. And I'm going to be cast away into the fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says, but the the true wheat, he says, I'm going to take back to my barn, and it will be with me, right? The celebration, the feast that Pastor Scott Mason preached about last week, this wedding feast. And so Jesus says there's two solutions. He says, but really it's only his solution that matters. And so there's this picture of counterfeits, these tares, these false Christians. And what Jesus is helping us understand is that Satan can't uproot an authentic Christian. We're grounded. We're secure in the person of Jesus Christ. We have a confidence in Christ, and Satan can't uproot us, so what does he do? He imitates. He creates false or counterfeits. So wherever Christ sows a true Christian, Satan sows a counterfeit to to distract. Why? Because there's this battle that is raging. And so Satan has counterfeit Christians. Paul deals with it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26. You can see it on the screen. Paul, speaking of his trials and his difficulties in ministry, says, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. You kind of get a sense there's danger, right? Danger at sea. Get what he says. Danger from false brothers. Paul is experiencing this. He's he's trying to do ministry, but what is he experiencing? He's experiencing people who are false, who are phony Christians, counterfeit. So what does Satan do with counterfeit Christians? Well, he he presents a counterfeit gospel. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul, again, writing to the church in Galatia, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who, who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen, not everybody who calls himself a Christian is a Christian. Not every preacher who is preaching the gospel is preaching the true gospel. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. That's what his word says. There is a battle of kingdoms that is taking place. So they believe a counterfeit gospel. They encourage a counterfeit righteousness. Romans chapter 10, again, as Paul writes to a church, he says, brothers, that's Christians, followers of Christ, authentic. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That means right thinking, a right theology. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So in other words, they came up with this own idea of what it means to be right. And we have churches and we have TV shows and all this kind of stuff that people are preaching a counterfeit gospel, a counterfeit righteousness. They're sort of making stuff up to make us feel good in our sin, but not have to be confronted because of our sin. Well, of course we want to feel good about ourselves, don't we? Who wouldn't want to feel good about themselves? And yet Jesus is teaching teaching this very harsh truth that, look, you can believe and be incredibly sincere and still be wrong. And there are people who sincerely believe a false counterfeit righteousness and a counterfeit gospel, and they are very sincere in their belief, but they're sincerely wrong. 
That may seem harsh and it may seem difficult. Scripture goes on in Revelation to speak of a counterfeit church. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about a counterfeit Christ that will one day take a reign on the earth. So Satan is this imitator. He is a deceiver and he is at work trying to make us feel good about our sin instead of understanding the true righteousness of Christ. So Jesus is speaking to this counterfeit perspective, but he's also speaking of closure. What does it mean to be genuine? If he's saying there is a counterfeit, then what does it mean to be authentic? What does it mean to be real? Well, let's just look at God's word. Because salvation, in its very simplest, most easy form that I can describe it, is simply this. It's giving everything that I know of myself over completely in surrender to everything I know about God. To understand that I am a sinner who's separated from God in the best way I know how, I just give over everything that I am to him. And I receive what he intended for me. And I would break it down this way, right? Because I have to first understand how much God truly loves me and he cares for me. That he is pursuing me with incredible passion and mercy and grace. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He so loved Dave. Just put your name in there. For God so loved Dave that he gave his only son that if Dave would simply believe in him, Dave will have eternal life. Incredible truth. John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life, and you might have life abundantly. The word abundant doesn't mean lottery winning. It means full, meaningful. It means a life with purpose, with dignity, with honor. It means to truly understand why God created you and planted you here in the first place. Not to deal with the consequences and the guilt of sin, but to be free from the bondage of sin and to be alive in Christ. But there's a problem, right? We can understand God's love, but, but there's a problem that the Bible speaks of. And Romans chapter 3, 23 simply says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. You know who all is? It's all y'all. It's all of us. It's me. It begins with me. It extends to you. It, it extends to my children, my beautiful, blessed, great little sinners that they are. I mean, I love them to death. Never had to teach them to sin. We're born with this inherent nature to sin. And what is sin? You could say, well, I'm really not so bad. Listen, very simply, sin is anything contrary to the nature and character of God. We try to think of all the things. Well, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. It doesn't matter. Anything contrary to the nature and character of God is sin. So there's this separation, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short. All of us, every one of us is guilty. Do me a favor, just put your hand up and say, I'm guilty. Come on, I want every hand up, I'm guilty. Look at your neighbor and say, you're guilty. Right, because we're all guilty. We're all guilty. What does that that give us? Romans 6.23, for the wages, what we earn, the minimum wage, right? What we earn because of our sin is death. The word death is literally separation. So there's this separation between me and my sin and God and his righteousness. My sin, anything contrary to the nature and character of God and all of his righteousness and holiness separates me from him. And if you could just imagine, you know, the Grand Canyon between us, there's this huge separation and there's nothing I can do to bridge that gap. So what had to happen? Jesus had to die 
Something had to happen. And so Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for me and for you so that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God in all of his holiness and righteousness said, I still love you so much. I want to make a way for you to have a relationship with me. And he did that through the person of Christ. So he died for us. But you know what? He didn't just die for us. He rose for us. He he conquered death for us. We're going to celebrate communion in just a few moments. And we're going to celebrate the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just several weeks ago, Pastor Scott preached an incredible sermon in our series in 1 Corinthians on chapter 15. Go back and watch it again. Because right there, Paul says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In other words, to fulfill prophecy that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, again, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 at a time. You see, Jesus didn't just simply die for our sins. He rose so that we can have life and have life eternal. Not Not just heaven one day when we die, but heaven now. Heaven is both here and hereafter. We live this abundant life in Christ. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, he made probably the most bigoted, intolerant statement you can make in our culture today when Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. I mean, do you understand how intolerant that is in our culture? Not all roads lead to God. And you may believe that, but you can believe it sincerely and still be wrong, right? A counterfeit gospel, a counterfeit righteousness to go, hey, I am sinful and separated from God in all of his holiness and all of his righteousness. And there's nothing I can do to earn that. Going to church doesn't help. It's a great, it doesn't, it's not the answer, it's a great place to find the answers. Maybe you're here this morning looking for answers. Being here is not the answer. You with me? This is where you're going to find the answers. Taking communion, that's not the answer. It's not going to get you there. Put money in the tithe box, giving to, it's not going to get you there. Because the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. I love what R.C. Sproul, great theologian, he said, having a sound understanding of salvation is no guarantee that we have the salvation we so soundly understand. And some of you are sitting here and you go, man, I know all this stuff. I've got, I've got a sound understanding. I've got a good intellectual understanding of everything you're talking about. Having a good understanding of this truth doesn't give you the truth. Does that make sense? So what does the Bible say? The Bible says that we must receive this truth. We must receive this grace by faith. John 1.12, as John is writing, he says, but as many as received him, to those who believe in his name, he's been given the right to be called children of God. There has to be a believing and a receiving. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. There's not a thing I can do to earn this incredible gift that God demonstrated his love for me. I can't do anything to earn it. I have to receive it as a gift. But if that gift is offered and offered and offered and never received, then is it truly mine? So intellectually, I can know all these things, but there has to be a receiving. 
You see, trusting in Christ for salvation, to move from my sin to, to his righteousness, there has to be intellect, emotion, and will. Intellectually, you can know all those things. Emotionally, you can be moved to go, man, I am broken and I am sinful, and we would all agree. But see, those things alone don't enter into relationship with Christ. To be genuine and not artificial, there has to be a surrender of my will to his. A complete giving over of everything that I am to everything that he is. Repentance, to say, God, I turn away from my life. And repentance creates the picture of turning from my sin and myself to someone, and that someone is Jesus Christ. To say, I am dying to myself, I'm dying to my sin nature, and God, I'm going to walk in relationship with you. You see, you receive Christ by faith as an act of our will. I can know about God's love, and I can know about his death, and I can know about his burial and his resurrection. And intellectually, I can know that. And emotionally, I can be moved by that. But salvation becomes when I act out of my will to receive that and turn from my sin and receive Christ. There has to be an exchange that says, I am exchanging my sin for his righteousness. And I receive that. See, when God looks at me, what does he see? Well, what does it mean to have the righteousness of God? Well, I love Tim Keller. He, he said, the irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit that you're completely unworthy of it. Right? The, the only way to be worthy of his righteousness is to come to the place of admitting that I am completely unworthy of his righteousness in the first place. That, that brings brokenness. That brings repentance, not just saying I'm sorry. You see, a lot of people have, have come to the realization that God is holy and righteous, and I'm a sinner, and, and I've been caught, and so I apologize to God. He's not looking for an apology. He's looking for repentance. It's like when I found one of my boys hitting the other with a brick. And I said, tell him you're sorry. He goes, I'm sorry. Was he truly sorry? No. He, he's sorry he was caught. And some of us have sat in church services or we've read the word and we realize we're sinners and we realize, man, God caught me in my sin and so, hey, God, hey, man, I'm really sorry. No, see, repentance and a surrender of the will to truly receive Christ is very different than simply saying, I'm sorry. So where does this righteousness come from? You see, Jesus alludes to this counterfeit he, he talks about having genuine faith, being a true follower of Jesus Christ. But I love what, what is implied in this text is there's a sense of confidence. There's a sense of confidence that comes with a true follower of Jesus Christ. And that confidence, get this, is based on the nature and character of God, not on me. I'm going to take you back for just a moment because when we're talking about this sin, this separation between the righteousness and holiness of God and my sin and your sin, we have to understand why this bridge was created through the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament because uh, I, one of the things I love is, is there's no way to, to really describe God, right? If I were to say, hey, describe God, how do you begin that process? Anybody? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Well, the Hebrew word is literally Elohim. It means our creator. And so he's first introduced to us in all of Scripture as our creator. Makes sense, right? Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac, he's introduced to us as Jehovah 
Jireh, God our provider. And so what's cool is all through Scripture, God begins to unfold his nature and his character. We begin to understand more of who God is through a revelation of his names. There's over 300 names attributed to God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit in all of Scripture. Just beginning to, to un, un, you know, sort of scratch the surface of, of his vastness. And so here we understand, going to Genesis, or Jeremiah chapter 33, you can see it on the, on the screen. This is a prophetic word that is spoken. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Lord right there is all caps, and that is the name Jehovah. That is the proper name of God that he gave to Moses at the burning bush, the great I am, Jehovah. And so anytime you see that in all caps, it simply means Jehovah. So declares Jehovah, when I fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, in those days and at that time, I will cause, get this, a righteous branch to spring up for David. Sounds like Christmas time, doesn't it? Here's this prophetic word of this coming forth. I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, the prophetic truth here is that this Messiah, this righteousness, would come from the line of Jesse, from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. There had to be a fulfillment of the prophetic words that were spoken, and that's exactly what he did. Verse 16, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. Get this, and this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. The Hebrew rendering here is, is the name Jehovah Sidkenu. He is God our righteousness. You see, when God looks at me in my sin and he says, Dave, I love you and I made a way for you to have a relationship with me. How did he do that? He didn't do it based on any merit of my own. He did it on his own righteousness. He said, I am your righteousness. Therefore, I will cover you with my righteousness so that when I look at you, even though I can't allow sin into my presence because I'm a holy, righteous God, I will look at you and, Dave, I will not see your sin. I will see my righteousness that covers you. God, what an incredible picture. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, he says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. You hear the security? I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Why? Because I'm going to rescue you from your sin with my righteousness. And because it's my righteousness, you will be secure in me. You will be secure in my nature. You will be secure in my character. And so God has to look at us not as sinful people. He needs to see us as righteous. How in the world can he see me as righteous when I'm still a sinner? See, I came to know Christ four decades plus ago. I was two at the time. But I'm kidding, by the way. But it was. It was like 40 years ago. And, and I gave my life to Christ. And at that point, he covered me with his righteousness. And he invited me into a relationship with him. And he looks at me and he doesn't see my sin, even though time and time and time again I sin. He still looks at me not as a sinner. He looks at me and he sees his righteousness that covers me. It's really a beautiful picture. And I love word pictures. There's things every day in my life that remind me of something in my relationship with Christ. One of those things is my toothbrush. We'll talk about that at another time. Other things are things like that, that little strip across the top of your windshield that's like a different color. Anybody have one of those in their car? And you're driving along, it's like, wow, the sky is really beautiful blue. And then you realize, well, it's not that blue. Because you're looking through that little shaded area. Anybody else wear sunglasses? 
I can't wear sunglasses because I, I break them, I sit on them, I lose them, so I just don't. But anything, when, when you look, if you look at blinds, right? Anybody know anybody that owns a blind business? Uh, when, when you look at blinds or shades and it's diffusing light, you're, you're seeing things a little bit different. And so I love the picture. I need some help. Miss Janet, here, I'm going to give you this. Here, Drew. I just need your help. This is a, a real easy test. Give this, give this to somebody else, too. Yeah, give that one to somebody. Okay, so this is just a little piece of green glass. And when I look through it, what do I see? Yeah, I see you, but you all look really green. You look, you know, kind of sickly. Let's go to the ER because you just don't look good. Okay, Miss Janet, what do you have? You have yellow. When you look through that, Miss Janet, everything seems to look kind of what? Kind of yellow. Very good. You pass. You get a star, right? So she's got yellow. So when you look through that, yeah, it's like, wow, really? Everybody kind of looks yellow. Drew, what, what do you have? You've got blue. I've got a blue one. And when you look through that, I look kind of what? I kind of look blue. And y'all sort of look blue. Okay. Chris, what do you got? You got red. I love red. I had, a, I had a purple one. I had a light purple and I had a deep purple. Dun, 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 dun. Thank you for those that are over 40 that got that one. Okay. All right, so, so you look through that, and everything sort of seems amazing, amazing. amazingly red. red, right? Thank you. Now, glad that none of you are colorblind, because that would totally throw everything off, okay? But see, when you look through that, and I, and I love red, because red reminds me of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, again, anytime I look through something that's shaded or, you know, something, it, it's constantly reminding of the righteousness of Christ. That when God looks at me, what is this name saying? He is Jehovah Sidkenu. Paul in Ephesians talks about how God imputes his righteousness. Not an English word we use a whole lot, but it simply means to deposit on someone's behalf. That God has imputed his righteousness upon us. So that when he looks at Dave, even though I am a sinner before God, I've confessed, I've received, it involved my intellect, my emotion, my will, I've received the forgiveness of Christ. So that when he looks at me, he doesn't see my sin, he sees his righteousness that covers me. Isn't that an incredible truth? To know that we have this confidence that comes because Jesus Christ imputes his righteousness on us as his children. And so Jesus is saying, look, there's a sense of confidence that you can have, Dave, not based on who you are, but based on his nature and character, that he is righteous. And in his faithful truth, he imputed his righteousness upon me. And that gives me an incredible sense of confidence. So that when the time comes, no matter what I think or how I feel, I realize that God has, has covered me with his righteousness and that I am secure in him. See, I, I deal with a lot of people through the years, three decades of ministry, that, and I realize that so many people are not secure in Christ. Yeah, they, they talk about how they came to know him, but, but there's no security, there's no sense of assurance. And so they're not in that first camp that we talked about, and they're, they're not in the, the far right camp having this incredible security. They kind of fall right in the middle, saying, yeah, I know all those things, but I don't have a confidence and I don't have an assurance. And one of the questions that I have dealt with most in, in my personal ministry with people is when they come to me and they ask this simple question, Pastor Dave, how can I be sure that I'm a Christian? How, how can I have a sense of assurance? 
And so I'm going to take a minute, if I could, and I wish that we could just sit down. If I could just stop the message right here and just say, let's just sit down. Let's meet at Starbucks or McDonald's or whatever, and let's just have a Coke or a coffee, and let's just talk. And if I could sit down with you and and doodle, I love to doodle. If you've sat with me at all, I love to doodle and I love to draw. And I could just talk to you about what it means, number one, to have a relationship with Christ. I would share the things that I shared. But to talk about the assurance of salvation, Pastor Dave, how can I know for sure? Dave, how can I have the confidence that you have? People have said, man, how how do you know that that Christ lives in your heart? I said, because I invited him. And they said, yeah, but how, how do you know? I said, I was there. I was there, and I believe that God did exactly what he said. And so I would share three simple truths with you. Can I share these? Number one, the trustworthy word of God. The trustworthy word of God. See, God is a trustworthy God. He is a righteous God. He is a just God. He is a loving God. He is a merciful God. And because he is truth, truth isn't just something he demonstrates. Truth is part of his nature and character. He cannot deny himself. He cannot lie. Therefore, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, he's speaking to a church, but it makes sense for us in our relationship with him. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. He didn't say, I might. He didn't say, well, go to church and wait, get baptized, take communion, give a thousand dollars, you know, whatever. No, he says, when you come to the place of, of inviting him in, he said, I will come in. That's a done deal to me. So when I invited Christ into my life, guess what? I believe he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And, and you go, well, Pastor Dave, I, man, sometimes I don't feel like I'm a Christian. And I go, well, what do your feelings have to do with anything? You see, feelings are it's not, it's not based on the truth of God's word. Truth of God's word is that he's going to do exactly what he said. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And if you've come to that place in your life that you've received his forgiveness, you've called upon the name of the Lord, you trust him, let me just tell you, you are saved whether you feel like it or not. Based on the truth of his word, not based on our feelings. That's a whole nother conversation for the next day at the coffee shop. Where do my feelings fit? Because it's a very legitimate question. So we have to understand the trustworthy word of God. We also have to understand the confirming Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible tells us that when he imputes his righteousness, he does that through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God who takes up residence in us. Ephesians 1, 7, in him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. And Paul goes on and he says, at that point, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing all of our future inheritance. So when we come to know Christ and and receive him as an act of the will, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit confirms. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. See, the confirming Holy Spirit daily reminds me that I am a child of God. But he also does that through conviction. You see, one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict Dave of his sin. And he does it every day. 
And that's a tough one, right? Because it's like, wow, I, I blew it. And, and now I'm convicted by the, I'm not condemned, but I'm convicted because God has a greater standard for me and I should be kind of doing better in my walk with him to bring honor and glory to his name. And so it, it hurts to be convicted of my sin, but at the same time I go, yippee. Because that conviction is part of the affirmation of the Holy Spirit. It's part of the confirming Holy Spirit that I am indeed a child of God. Why? Because God cares enough about me to convict and correct me. So we have to lean on the conviction of the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur, in a great little booklet he did called A Believer's Assurance, and, and it's actually in PDF form, and I may link it to our, our uh, Facebook group page or something, but he, I love what he says. He says, assurance is the reward of tested and proven faith. It is the Holy Spirit who gives it, not a human being. It's the confirming Holy Spirit. So the trustworthy word of God, the confirming Holy Spirit, and then lastly, a changed life. See, at Southbridge, we're all about connecting people to Jesus for life change. Why? Because a true salvation experience brings a changed life. 1 John chapter 2, and by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he did. R.C. Sproul, great theologian, said, anybody who has true faith is a changed person. And if they're not, that's proof that they don't have saving faith. Boy, that, that's a fine balance, isn't it? See, you can have knowledge without a saving faith. Salvation is a result. It, it, doesn't, it, it results in our works, but salvation is not earned because of our works. So when we come to know Christ, the, the response then is works in accordance with life change, works in accordance with the presence of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The assurance of salvation is such a powerful thing in the life of a believer because it changes the way we interact with people. It changes the way we look at the mission that God has given us. See, if we're not confident in our walk and our personal relationship with Christ, how can we have confidence to go share? How can, how can we have confidence to engage people who are lost and, and they're going to die and be separated from Christ for all eternity. And so in this parable, Jesus is saying, look, here's the honest truth. He says, there's the real deal and there's the counterfeit. And he says, you can't tell them apart. It's not your job to tell them apart, but there will come a day that I, God, I will separate the two. And I'm gonna take the counterfeit. I'm gonna take the one that's never truly surrendered their life to Christ. They don't have the presence of the Spirit. And what does he say? I'm going to bundle them, and I'm going to cast them out to a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So as we learn to walk in confidence of our own relationship with Christ, we look at others with a different perspective, with a sense of love, with a sense of grace. When I look somebody in the eye, I've never looked someone in the eye that God doesn't love. I've got to be honest, I may not care for them, Anybody with me? People are annoying. But see, as I grow in confidence in my relationship with God, I look at other people differently. 
because I know that I am secure in Christ and I will spend an eternity in the presence of God. And to look at somebody without the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ is to say, I hate you so much that I'm unwilling to share with you the love of Jesus Christ. What kind of hate is that? God, let me never hate somebody. But many times as believers, we don't share the love and the grace of Christ because we're not secure in it ourselves. We've never learned to walk in the assurance of our salvation, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Christ this morning is challenging some of you to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, to walk in a sense of assurance and to up your game, to, to realize that God has planted you somewhere as the real deal to bring honor and glory to him. Some of you are just sitting in the middle saying, man, I'm not really sure what to do with all this. I think I've come to know Christ, but I'm just not sure. I don't have a confidence. I don't have an assurance. We want to help you do that this morning. And some of you are back in camp one saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. Or you may be sitting here this morning saying, I, I know for a fact I've never given my heart and life to Christ. Folks, I want to invite you this morning to come to know this God that loves you so deeply and so passionately. So no matter where you are this morning, every single one of us in this place has a next step. Every one of us, every single one of us. And I'm just asking you to be honest with, with the God that loves you and simply ask God, what is my next step?